We read these words. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. Now when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come in to you. For he, did not know who she wa- for he did not know she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away. And taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Now when Judas sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of that place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anayim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by your immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Now as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. 
Now when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread in his hand, and his name was called Zerah. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I said just a few moments ago, we've come this afternoon to a sordid story. We've come to a sordid story of covenant-breaking and sexual immorality. We've come to a sordid story of, of the church mixing in with the world. We've come this afternoon to a sordid story that should result in death and condemnation. It's a story that some of us would be tempted to simply read over or act like it's not really there. And yet we know that this story, as sordid as it is, that this story of Judah and Tamar is a story that's that's situated in in the greater story of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this story, as sordid and unseemly and shameful as it may be, is a story that nevertheless proclaims to us the wonder of God's grace. Because here in Genesis 38, we do see the the grace of God breaking through. Here we see the the grace of God breaking through and and shining brightly in the midst of our darkness and depravity. Here we see the grace of God breaking through to offer us hope and consolation in the midst of all the mess and misery of our sins. The events that the Spirit of Christ records for us here in Genesis 38 are events that are taking place on the long road to Bethlehem. These events are telling us about the family. They're telling us about the ancestry of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But the story begins with Judah. Judah, we know, is going to rise to a place of great prominence in the Bible At the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob is going to bless Judah, saying that the scepter shall never depart from Judah. Judah is going to be a a royal tribe to, to King David. The apostle John tells us that Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah. And these sorts of things are probably the things that first come to mind when we think about Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, the lion from the tribe of Judah. But what do we read of Judah here in the opening lines of Genesis 38? Now it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside. The phrase at that time, of course, refers to the events that have just taken place in Genesis chapter 37. It was at that time when Joseph had been sold into slavery. It was at that time when Joseph had been sold into slavery by Judah's suggestion. It was at that time when Joseph was grieving the loss of his son, having been led to believe by Judah and his brothers that Joseph had been devoured by some wild animal. It was at that time that Judah turned aside, that he went down from his brothers and turned aside 
to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And this, people of God, is simply code language. It's the Spirit's way of saying that Judah left the church. Judah left the church and he became a friend of the world. We have to recognize here in Genesis 38 that the family of Jacob, later renamed Israel, was at this time the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was through the line and family of Jacob that God was was carrying out his covenant promises. It was through the line and family of Jacob that God was, was carrying out the great mother promise that through the seed of the woman, Satan's head would be crushed. There was no family in all the world so blessed as the family of Jacob. For the covenant promises, the gospel promises have been given to Jacob. But Judah now follows in the foolish way of Uncle Esau. Judah leaves the church and he befriends the world. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son and called his, na- and called his name Ur. Judah befriends a Canaanite man and he marries a Canaanite wife. And this he does not only at the expense of his own name but also at the expense of his father's name. What Judah is doing here is saying something about Jacob. What Judah is doing here is saying something about the God of Jacob, that the God of Jacob is not a God who's really worth devoting his life to. And through these choices, Judah is dragging not only his father's name through the mud, but he is dragging God's name through the mud. And he doesn't care. Judah is simply doing what Judah wants to do. Surely Judah must have known how, how it grieved his grandmother Rebekah when Esau took for himself a wife from the Canaanites. He must have known how his grandfather Isaac had, had said to Jacob, you must not take a wife from the Canaanites. He must have known how his great-grandfather Abraham had insisted to his servant, you must go back to Ur to get a wife from there. Isaac cannot marry a Canaanite. Judah doesn't care. Judah rejects the covenant promises that were signified and sealed in his circumcision. He marries a Canaanite, a pagan unbeliever. He makes himself unequally yoked. And in so doing, he shows that his heart is not true to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in so doing, says one pastor, Judah is committing spiritual suicide. That's what he's doing. Judas committing spiritual suicide. He's begun to walk in the way of the world, the way that leads to death and misery. And so here in the person of Judah, we see a picture of ourselves, don't we? Because here we're reminded that by nature, this, of course, is is our tendency as well. We too, as we just sang, we too are are prone to wander. We too are, are prone to leave the God we love. That's how we pray, take my heart. Oh, take and seal it because our hearts are fickle and frail and they're moved by all the wrong things. And so in Judah's turning aside, we can't help but see 
all the ways in which we too have turned aside. That's what the Spirit would have us to see as we look at Judah, not just to point the finger at Judah, but to see where have I gone down and turned aside. All we like sheep have gone astray, says Isaiah. We have all turned aside, each one of us, to go our own way. Where in our lives are we doing that? Judah's actions here, we recognize, are simply springing forth from a hard and rebellious heart. Judah is, is chasing the pleasures of sin. He's seeking the friendship of the world. He's found himself a Canaanite friend. He's taken himself a Canaanite wife. And we discover in verses 6 and following that the sins of the father are now passed on to the next generation. For though the Lord had been gracious to give Judah three sons of his own... When his oldest son became ready for marriage, what did Judah do? He took a Canaanite wife for him also, namely Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn son, the Spirit tells us, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord put him to death. Apparently, Ur was a wicked and unrighteous man. Apparently, Ur took his father's sins to the next level, and so the Lord dealt with him swiftly. In his divine justice. And this, you could say, is where the tension in the story really begins to rise because the death of Ur, of course, leaves Tamar a childless widow. And if she remains childless, then she'll be considered not only to be a failure, but she'll also be destitute the rest of her life. And so Judah does well in verse 8 when he commands his second son, Onan, to go into his brother's wife to perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her in order to raise up offspring for his brother. While this, of course, may seem rather unseemly to our 21st century ears, this ancient practice, later called leveret marriage, levier meaning brother-in-law, brother-in-law marriage, this practice, outlined in Deuteronomy 25, was designed to, to maintain the line of a dead brother, lest his wife and his name be forgotten in the generations. And so what Onan was meant to do was to take Tamar into his home and and into his heart in order that he might raise up offspring for Tamar and for his brother Ur. But this is an obligation that Onan is not willing to fulfill because Onan, you see, knows that if Tamar conceives and gives birth to a son then the lion's share of his father's inheritance will go to Tamar's son and not to Onan. And Onan wants the lion's share for himself. But at the same time, Onan's unwillingness to fulfill this obligation to raise up an heir for Tamar does not prevent him from using Tamar for his own sexual gratification. Full of lust and full of greed, Onan is concerned only with Onan. The word translated as whenever in verse 9 in the original Hebrew is a word that indicates this is is something that, that Onan did with some frequency. He was perfectly willing to sleep with Tamar. He was willing to use Tamar. But he wasn't willing to raise up an heir for Tamar. And what Onan did, verse 10, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so wicked, in fact, that the Lord put him to death also. 
God does not turn a blind eye to Onan's sins. God doesn't allow Onan's wickedness to go unpunished. In both the sudden deaths of Ur and Onan, we see something of judgment day breaking into the present day. God does not turn a blind eye to sin. He does not let wickedness go unpunished. And reading about these things should be enough to make us shudder and recoil. What horrible and detestable wickedness has crept into the family of Judah? It's almost unspeakable. And how justly the Lord has dealt with all this. But do these events cause Judah to humble himself? Do these events cause Judah to, to repent before the Lord? The death of his two firstborn sons? Not at all. Rather, Judah seems to shift all the blame onto Tamar. And Judah treats Tamar as though she's the cause for the death of his first two sons, fearing that if, that if he gives Sheila to Tamar, then Sheila will die too. And so he regards Tamar as nothing more than some sort of bad luck charm or some sort of jinx on the sons of Judah. Judah doesn't even bother to look at himself in the mirror of God's law. He doesn't take pause to consider the fact that perhaps God is dealing with him and his family and his divine justice. But what does Judah do instead? Judah simply sends Tamar away. He sends her back to the house of her father, promising with his, with his fingers crossed behind his back that when Sheila's old enough, then he'll give Sheila to Tamar. When we come to verse 12, we discover that Judah's wife has now died as well. So now only Judah and Sheila remain. When Judah left his father's house, when he turned aside from his brothers to go and, and live like the world, Satan must have promised him everything. The devil, no doubt, did what he always did. He said, here's the way to true happiness. Go and, and live with the Canaanites. There you'll find a true pleasure and true happiness. But where has all Judah's wickedness gotten him? All Judah's wickedness has only led to misery. He is now grieving the death, not only of his first two sons, but his wife as well. And yet in the midst of all this, Tamar, it would seem, has perhaps learned something of the promises of God that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because despite all the, the horrible things that have been done to her, Tamar, it would seem, is still holding on. As messed up as Tamar may be, Tamar still desires children. She still desires seed. And it would seem that what Judas says later on in verse 26 with regards to Tamar being more righteous than he, that her desire for seed is perhaps grounded in the promise that through Abraham's seed the nations of the world might be blessed. But up to this point in the story, Tamar has been quite passive, hasn't she? Her marriage to Ur had been arranged by Judah. Her abuse by Onan had been at the instigation of Judah. Her being brought into the family circle was by Judah, and her being kicked out of the family circle was done by Judah. 
But in verse 14, we learn that she's been wearing widow's garments all these years. Tamar has not yet spoken a word, says one writer, but Tamar's clothing tells a story. Because Tamar's clothing tells us that she's still holding out hope that Judah will fulfill his word to give her Shelah in order that an heir might be produced. Meanwhile, Judah continues to walk in his wicked way. After some time of of mourning his wife's passing, Judah goes up to Timnah. He and his friend hire the the, the Adulamite to participate in the shearing of the sheep, which was normally a time of, of much partying and revelry. And once more in the story, God is holding up Judah as as a mirror or as a window before our own hearts, as as Judah once again, he once more flees to the false comforts and false pleasures of the world. But when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. And while the spirit is certainly not condoning Tamar's methods here, and while we don't condone her methods either, Tamar's aim here is to secure her right to a son in Judah's family. Throughout this story, Judah is acting out of desire. He's acting out of pleasure. But Tamar is here acting out of desperation. She doesn't know what else to do. And she seems to care more about covenant seed than Judah does. And so when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute and he turned to her in order that he might be with her. And this, of course, should shock us as well. Even though Judah is a widower, he's grieving the loss of his wife, that doesn't condone any of this. It doesn't condone finding pleasures in a prostitute. But Judah takes the bait and he consents to her terms to give her a goat in exchange for her service. But Judah doesn't have a goat. So what does he do? He gives her his signet, his cord, his staff as a pledge. These are all forms of of identification. Judah gives her the equivalent of what would be your wallet, his driver's license, and in his passport. That's what Judah is giving her as a pledge. And the deed is done. He goes into Tamar, and at last, Tamar conceives. And we, of course, can't help but see just how foolish all this really is. Really, Judah, you, you give up these three pieces of identification that will only link you to the crime? This is the folly of sin, is it not? How often doesn't sin blind us from seeing just how foolish something really is? How often isn't that our experience? After we've given into temptation, we look back and we say, how? How could I have been so stupid? How could I have been so, so foolish? The story moves along quickly in verses 18 and following. Tamar conceives by Judah. And afterwards, she goes away from Anayim, removing her veil, putting her widow's garments back on. 
And so when Judas sends Hira back to the place with the goat, because Judas is too embarrassed to go back himself, Tamar is nowhere to be found. Unless Judah should incur any more embarrassment upon himself, he says, forget it. Just let her have my pledge. Three months go by. And then it's told to Judah, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is now pregnant by her immorality. And how does Judah respond? Bring her out and let her be burned. And we say, what a hypocrite. What a hypocrite. But then the tables are turned in verse 25. When Tamar holds up Judah's proof of identification, saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And now Judah is exposed. Now Judah's sin and his shame, his hypocrisy, are, are laid bare for everyone to see. And in God's amazing grace, Judah's eyes are finally opened. And Judah is convicted of his sin. Judah's sin was committed at Anayim, which literally means opening of the eyes. And now his eyes are finally open. And he sees. Verse 26, then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. Tamar, we recognize, was not without guilt of her own. Again, we don't condone what Tamar did. Tamar is not without guilt of her own, but Tamar was more righteous than Judah. Judah had acted out of pleasure, whereas Tamar had acted out of desperation. After Ur had died, Tamar still desired to produce an heir for Judah. And after all these years, she's still been waiting for Sheila to be given to her. As one pastor has suggested, perhaps after the deaths of Ur and Onan by the hand of God, perhaps Tamar came to know that whoever the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was, he apparently took his covenant more seriously than Judah and his sons did. Isn't that what we need this afternoon, a God who takes his covenant more seriously than we do? At any rate, she was more righteous than Judah. And God has now used Tamar to bring Judah to the end of himself. We read at the end of verse 26 that Judah never knew her again. In other words, Judah repented. What Judah did was wrong. And he never did it again. And boys and girls, this is what true repentance is. This is what true repentance looks like. True repentance identifies a sin in your life and you come to say that's wrong. I'm not going to do that again. True repentance turns away from sin and turns instead toward the Savior. And this is what Judah does here. 
Judah's eyes were opened and he saw that what he did was wrong and he doesn't do it again. And if you read on into the coming chapters, you'll discover that by the time Joseph's brothers are sent to Egypt during the famine, Judah will have returned to his father's house. And not only that, but lest Jacob be driven to despair over the loss of Benjamin also, Judah, we know, is going to to put himself forward as a substitute. He's going to say to Joseph, no, don't take Benjamin, take me. And that's where Judah is going to reveal himself as the brother, as the Judah whom we all know and love. But Judah's change of heart, Judah's conversion has taken place right here. In his amazing grace, God stopped wicked Judah in his tracks and he turned Judah around. Isn't this what God has been gracious to do in our lives as well? That as Paul says, before God turned our lives around, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. That's what we were doing. We're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But then what does Paul go on to say? He says, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us in Christ Jesus made us alive together with Christ and seared us with Christ in heavenly places that he might show to us the immeasurable riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In verse 27, we read that when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself, or to translate it another way, how did you break through? Therefore, his name was called Perez, meaning breakthrough or breach. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread in his hand, and his name was called Zerah. And through the birth of these two boys, Tamar's future is secured. Tamar not only produces an heir, but Tamar's name is going to be remembered forever. Her name is remembered in the book of Ruth. Her name is remembered in the book of Matthew, in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. Jesus came into the world by Tamar. And in this way, the birth of Perez is really a foreshadowing of the birth of the greater son who was to come. Just as Perez broke through in this surprising, most unexpected way, so too the grace of God broke through in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this congregation, what this story, this is what Christmas is, is all about. Christmas, boys and girls, is about God's grace breaking through, breaking through the, the darkness and depravity of our lives. As, as Isaiah says, right, a light has shone on us who sat in darkness, a light has shone. Light has broken through. That day spring from on high has broken through in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that's what this story is about, God's grace breaking through, breaking through our sin and our misery and setting us on a new path, the path of repentance and faith. Tamar's future is secure just as our future is secure because God's grace has broken through in our lives just as it did in Judah's life. Do we see it? This is so... Do we recognize all the ways in which we see God's grace breaking through in our lives? Not only when we're convicted of our own sins, but also when we see our covenant children learning to love the Lord Jesus Christ, recognize that our children are conceived and born in sin, and how quickly we can take it for granted when they're four years old and they start to pray. When they come up here, for a Christmas program and sing about the birth of the Lord Jesus. And we can think that just happens, but it doesn't just happen. Not naturally. The grace of God has broken through. The grace of God has made a breach. And we need to be mindful of all the ways in which we see this taking place in our lives, God's grace breaking through the darkness and depravity of this life. What an amazing story. The story really is. The Lord Jesus comes from this story, from this sordid, ugly story of Judah and Tamar. Congregation, you'd think that Jesus would be ashamed. You'd think that he'd be embarrassed to have his name attached to the likes of Judah and Tamar. You'd think he'd be ashamed to have his name attached to the likes of you and me. When you think about everything you've done, wouldn't you think that Jesus would be ashamed of you? But what does Hebrews 2 tell us? Hebrews 2 says that Jesus is not ashamed. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, says the author of Hebrews. That is why he is not ashamed to call us brothers. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. He stands before heaven, says Hebrews 2, and he says, Behold, O Father, it is I and the children you have given to me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, says Hebrews 2, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He helps us. That's what Hebrews is saying. He helps us. Jesus is not ashamed to call Judah his brother. He's not ashamed to call Tamar his sister. And he's not ashamed or embarrassed to speak about you in the exact same way. How liberating it must have been for Matthew to, to be studying the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew, the former tax collector, and to find Jesus came by Tamar. He came by Rahab. He came by the adultery of Bathsheba and Uriah. And 
and David? How wonderful it must have been for Matthew writing his gospel to find if that's true. If Jesus was not ashamed to be identified with Tamar, then he must not be ashamed of me either. This is grace, congregation. God is proclaiming his grace to us this afternoon. He, he breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. He opens our eyes. He gives us eyes to see. He softens our hearts so that they're sensitive to sin, so that we come to embrace him as Savior and Lord. breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we stand in awe of the reality that your grace has broken through. That through all the darkness and the depravity of our lives, the grace of God broke through in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that your grace would continually break through. That in the midst of our own struggles with sin, your grace would break through. Lord, we know that just as it was for Judah, you see our sin that our sins are no less secret than Judah's sin was, despite how secret he thought it was. We thank you, Lord, that your grace invades the secret places of our sin, too, the places that no one else knows about. And that when your grace goes into those dark crevices of our lives, your grace breaks sin's power and sets us free. Lord, we thank you that his blood can make the foulest clean because we know, Lord, that if left to ourselves, we are foul, we are filthy. And we thank you, O God, that Jesus is not ashamed of us, that he is not embarrassed of us. Even now, as he intercedes for us, he says, Behold, O Father, it is I and the children you have given to me. Lord, we praise him even as we pray to him. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.